You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Winston Peters needs no introduction. He is both a political Lazarus and a phoenix with more comebacks than comedian Jimmy Carr. We're going to review his campaign so far and his media beat-ups with Rebecca Wright and Jack Tame. Expect some fireworks. And I'll be asking him about some important legislation that I think needs unpacking. Winston Peters is with me now. Welcome back to The Crunch, Winston. You're having a blinder of a campaign this time round, and uh, I'm just wanting to touch base with you with just over a week to go before the polls close, and we can talk about some of the things that have been maybe vexing you uh, with other media. Yeah, look, thanks for being on the program. You're quite right. It's been a great campaign. I put that down to a really hardworking team under the radar getting on with it, and despite the fact that the mainstream media can't seem to come to a meeting and print anything I've said, but rather want to come and ask questions like, for example, where's this candidate? And I said the other day, well, that person's not a candidate. So, but where is she? And I said, well, she's out in the community like she was before, but what's the point? Well, we just want to know. And I thought, well, why did you want to know? And the worst part about it is she has um, somebody who's husband is very, very ill. They just don't realise, you know, when they go down that pathway, just how vicious it all sounds. Mm. And they take another one for being, they claimed being a Nazi, and I said to them, her grandmother was murdered by the Nazis. Her um, uncle and his whole family were murdered by the Nazis. So what do you think uh, that you are doing when you call her one? That's mm. how dislocated and... Um, dysfunctional or worse still vindictive it is in an effort to try and um, head us off at the electoral pass, so to speak, but it's not going to work. No, I don't think it will work. Um, you know, I saw the attack on Lee Donoghue as well for actually elucidating at a meeting what New Zealand First's policy was regarding co-governance and hey, pua pua and undrip yes. and, and uh, tried to put words into your mouth and get you to throw him under the bus. But, you know, I'd interviewed Lee Donoghue the week before, and, uh, you know, I was mightily impressed by his grasp of uh, facts that other media seem to not have a grasp on. Oh, look, it's on purpose, and uh, I just said to them all, try as hard as you like. You're not going to stop us now. You've never been part of our rise in terms of reporting us fairly. And we decided to, uh, a long time ago, that the only way we could actually cut through is to do something that is part of uh, election campaigns. We'd go and hold public meetings and talk to people and answer their questions. And they find this is something phenomenal. They can't work it out because uh, they have been so dislocated from their role, which is report the facts, let the public decide. But no, no, they're in... uh, editorial mode, they're going to tell the public what they should think. And the public is hopping mad about that. And a recent survey of the mainstream media's perception is very bad for them. Do you think that the media uh, have, I I hesitate to use the word, but it's the only word that I can think of that uh, fits, but have the media, having taken government money, contingent on them promoting this heroic uh, rewrite of history uh, around Maori and the Treaty of Waitangi. 
Do you think that that has compromised or corrupted their integrity? Yeah, both. That's a fact. And, uh, and we're, some, we're a party that understands how critically important to democracy is a free, independent, unbiased press. That's a reality. We cannot go forward as a democracy if we're going to have a press that's contorted uh, by um, its conflict of having taken money like that. If it wasn't for the fact they had to sign up for the public interest fund, journalism fund, they had to sign a certain agreement. And mm. signing that up itself was, uh, in my view, an action of corruption. They can argue all they like, but there it is a fact. If it was not designed to purchase a certain um, reporting narrative from the mainstream media, then they wouldn't have been asked to sign up for it in the first place. What will you do, though, to stop the government? Because these rules are in place. They could easily be used by a government that it, that involves you. Uh, what are you going to do to stop the government or any future governments being able to dictate to media what they can and cannot report on? And what editorial perspectives do you think they should take? Well, we think it's so critical that part of our policy in this campaign is to announce a full-scale, not long, but full-scale focused Royal Commission on the very issue that we're talking about, on freedom of the press and press responsibilities to do their role. That is, a fourth estate, contingent as it always has been to a democracy, not a bunch of fifth columnists. That's how serious we think it is. But I made a speech uh, over 30 years ago about investigative journalism being trapped by a lack of resources and time to do their job properly. Mm. I never thought it would come this far to see it not happening. Well, you know, they they point to a whole lot of uh, various different factors that are occurring in the market. Well, I'm in the media market myself, and I've seen these factors, and I've adjusted the way that I operate and, and conduct business in the media. Uh, and I'm sitting here scratching my head thinking, well, why do you keep putting your hand out for government money? Why don't you change the way that you operate and actually – you know, uh, report the news instead of trying to be the news? Well, just like the fact uh, that um, that's what the rest of us have got to do. But for them, they don't because of that funding. But here's the point. Look, they had a debate on Radio New Zealand this morning on energy with three energy spokespeople, not the rest of us, just three, mm. and an attack on me and my view of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and its percentage with an EWA expert trying to gain say what I was saying. And all I said was that 0.04% of the, the Earth's atmosphere is carbon dioxide, mm. and there's a human contribution, and they were arguing about that. And then they said, he's also said that the biggest tsunami of late was in 1968, as though I connected, it to, as though I connected that to uh, issues like climate change. And I never, I just was, was saying, Esk Valley was in 1938, flooded like it is now. These are not new phenomena, but they weren't prepared to have the one person on to hear the other side of the story, me. And yeah. this is a state-owned, taxpayer-operated broadcaster close to an election, and I think they're going to get away with that. And, uh, you know, their panic is enormous at the moment about the rise of New Zealand First. Well, I watched the Jack Tame interview with you, and I watched him uh, like a yapping dog, like a, you know, like a chihuahua, really, just having a go at your ankles. Um, <laughs> and then I then I watched the interview straight after with James Shaw, yeah. and Jack Tame almost cuddled him. 
in the way that he was. None of the questions that were raised against your policies, nothing was done like that for James Shaw. I mean, they've got some absolutely crazy policies, like their wealth tax, for example, which is oh, going to drive people offshore. Well, it's not um, crazy. communist. Well, that's right. But the media, or Jack Tame in this instance, savaged you and yeah. cuddled James Shaw. That doesn't seem to be uh, any sort of journalistic integrity uh, from Jack Tame or TVNZ. Well, he tried to accuse me, right on the edge of libel and defamation, about taking a bribe from the racing industry. And I thought, this is phenomenal. They've only given me about one-ninth of the funding of the uh, whole operation. And the whole operation of our funding from sources, including business, would be probably about, about Jack Tame's salary and his um, benefits. And uh, I thought to myself, you come to take on the wrong guy, mate. And... Um, then I thought to myself, you're just a lefty shill anyway. <laughs> um, he didn't react particularly well to your suggestion that New Zealand first take up the broadcasting portfolio. Well, he, well, he was, uh, you know, is that a threat? And I said, no, no, it's a promise. We're going to try and fix things up. Who could be possibly against that? Well, that's right. Now, you've um, talked about Willie Jackson's grand plan to merge TVNZ and Radio New Zealand, and you think it's nonsense. Is there a case, and would this be a New Zealand first policy, to look to either sell both of those organisations while there's still some value left in it, or at the very least cut their government funding? Uh, look, that's why we want a full-scale commercial inquiry. We want an independent one that's actually looking at its uh, essentialities of uh, sound media, whatever it is, public or private, uh, with respect to the um, soundness of a democracy. And the reality is, you know, a, a, uh, you want to hear a, see a great speech. Hollyoak made a speech when Murdoch, coming out of Adelaide, when he only owned one newspaper, wanted to buy the Dominion in Wellington. Mm. It's a great speech of Parliament that Hollyoke made to stop it. I think it was in the 60s. And he gave the reason why. It's the same way as that when the BBC was operating well and when the ABC was operating well, it was the voice of an emerging culture called Australia or the emerging, a culture called the UK or they will call England or Britain or whatever it is. And I always saw RNZ in that way, but of late it's become so impossibly politically biased. And um, they think, and this is more the alarming aspect, they think that that's normal. Yeah, well, that's, it is alarming that they think that that's normal. But, you know, with politicians, with MPs, there's a register of pecuniary interests, right, so that we know who politicians are getting gifts from, mm. who are getting donations from or being taken yeah. to the rugby. Do you think it's time we need to set up a pecuniary interest register for media personalities to see what fees they're taking for emceeing the Greenpeace conference or doing those sorts of things? Well, when I was a politician, the taxpayer were paying my salary and therefore it was publicly disclosed. The taxpayers paying Jack Tam's salary, wasn't that not disclosed? See what I mean? Yeah, there's a double standard there. Oh, well, yeah, duplicity and double standard it resounds, it reeks of it. But of course, again, here is a normal, uh, you would think, uh, very easy to understand concept of fairness, and they don't get it. There's another uh, media outlet out there, and uh, Sean Plunkett is one of the hosts of that. You've been on his show a few times. Uh, on Tuesday morning, he had a mad rant that I'm paid for by New Zealand First, 
that I'm a shill for New Zealand First, that I'm helping your campaign, uh, that there's some dirty politics involved and people in the dirty politics book are involved in New Zealand First. I know what I know what the answer is to that, but the question I've got for you, Winston, is where's my check? <laughs> no, well, I, I mean, if you were sitting there with a cheated look on your face, I could understand that, but it's not true. And it's actually hilarious. And I don't know why people do that. Uh, you know, as a trained lawyer, you you ask questions, you stay there until you get the facts. Whenever you fail, you know that you may not have got all the facts, but this sort of allegation thrown out there to defame people irresponsible and extreme is just not acceptable. Yeah, I mean, he's he's repeating what one of his co-hosts, Tina Nixon, has been saying all over Twitter and uh, and on her radio show that I'm I'm a paid pro New Zealand first uh, person. Now, you know, maybe you should um, explain to listeners uh, some of our past and the things that, things that I was... <laughs> We've had more rows than most people have had hot dinners. And here's the, here's the fact of the matter, though. Where did they think New Zealand first would get the money from? We've got less money than the Greens. We've got less money. We've got about, for every dollar the Acts Party's got, we've got one. Uh, National Party, for every 11, we've got one. And here they come and make an extraordinary statement like that when you know that campaign is extraordinarily expensive and we've been on the road for months and months and months mm. and they would make a statement like that and it doesn't even it wouldn't even survive the first most basic question, where would they get the money from? No, no, they just go and say it. Yeah, they have. I mean, they've essentially defamed me and they've defamed you at the same time by saying there's some sort of subversive, sneaky arrangement that's going on. Now, yeah, <laughs> I, I could look, I've had huge Donny Brooks with you over the, you know, in the past. And I, I remember one time winding you up in, uh, in, uh, on the set of The Nation one morning, uh, you know, just. <laughs> Just because I could. <laughs> um, so, you know, we've always had big Donnybrooks, but what, what I'm really hinting about here is that when we have arguments and discussions, we're actually just debating ideas. And isn't that something that's been lost in New Zealand politics? It's funny to say that, you know. I was reading some of the sayings from the great American jurist Oliver Wendell Holmes and he says precisely that, you know, the subject of learning is enhanced by actually preparedness to listen to alternative and different views. And he goes further to say that one of the critical parts of free speech is your willingness to defend, not cancel, of views that are not shared by you. And that is, it's absolutely so fundamental now to free speech. And I thought, how has this man made this, all these statements about a, almost 100 years ago, and people just in a modern society, 2023, with all the access to information, don't get it. And the cancel culture is being promulgated by the media. I mean, we've watched uh, the media play a game with David Seymour. Now, you and him you know, have differences of opinion, but watching the media uh, doorstep him like they have with you regarding what a candidate might have said on social media 20 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago, and then dropping the next question saying, well, how long are they going to stay as a candidate and hoping that the leader will throw them under the bus. Now, you've stood strong and haven't done that with any of them, but David Seymour has thrown some of his candidates under the bus, 
and then just emboldened the media to go even harder and dig a bit deeper. So Nathan's Star Times about six weeks ago had five pages of attack on New Zealand First, never even phoned me, mm. five pages of it about all these candidates. And I thought, well, I don't think that they're candidates. I, they might be standing to be a candidate, but they have to survive the final approval process. And there's a lot of things that happen when people are wanting to be candidates. They have business difficulties, family difficulties, time difficulties. All these things were changed, but they wrote five pages and never, ever, with a big front page on the, of me looking very, very, you know, demon-like <laughs> at the heading. And that's what they did. And I thought, the editor, I thought to myself, yeah, you're the one in 2017, before the special votes are even counted, was accusing me of holding the country to ransom. 11 days after special days uh, votes were counted, we were then forming a government. The day after the 2017 election, the Germans had an uh, election as well, and four and a half to five months later, they still hadn't formed a government. You see the unfairness? We he didn't even have the special votes to know what, to know what we're dealing with, and I was being accused of that. Now, how can you possibly let people like that get away with it? And when you come back at them, they're saying, "Oh, you're being chauvinist, or you're being angry, or you're being something else." And the answers, "No, you explain why you put a headline like that that out before the person who's trying to make a judgment knows what the final outcome and how many MPs each party has got." It, the, I get the feeling. Winston, that there's a bit of a surge on for New Zealand First at the moment. It's it's a gut feeling, but it's from 40 years of observing politics and doing what I've doing for the last 20 full time. I I'm picking up there's a lot of people out there that are very angry, uh, that are not confident in choosing one of the bigger parties, and are casting about for somebody who's going to represent the ordinary Kiwi. And I'm picking that vibe up more and more and more from people who are coming up to me and saying, you know, Cam, um, I've been listening to your show. I've listened to the candidates that you've been interviewing. I'm liking what I'm hearing from here, but is Winston going to make the 5%? That's the point. You are right about it. there being a surge on and uh, polls as dubious as, as they are in New Zealand because of their massive variability. You don't see that in Australia. You don't see it in Canada or the UK or USA. The spread there might be 3.5% max. Here, it's sometimes 20%. No, that cannot, cannot be the case mm. to, be a, a, to be a professional polls, so to speak. But we've felt a long time out. We, you don't pack holes to the gunnels where we can't find extra seats. And this journalist uh, reporter from New Zealand just to, uh, over the, the last couple of days, was down in the Hawke's Bay and my, one of my advisors said, she cannot be here for an honest purpose. She's here to try and line you up. And sure enough, she was at a meeting of the sailing club. We had to open up two extra rooms to get the crowd in the cool. Still couldn't have, didn't have enough chairs for about 100 of them. And there she is saying that he's speaking to small meetings. At the start of her article, but perhaps she got about seven paragraphs into the meeting, she was talking about packed halls. So she started out to try and minimise what was happening, but even then accidentally fell into it. But that's not the point. She didn't report one thing I said. Uh, and what I'm saying is uh, we have felt that we were on the right path, that people wanted to do 
And it's always difficult to answer sometimes up to three quarters of an hour of questions, but we did because people want desperately for information about their own lives and about what your Ford uh, promises are. And I suppose the most fundamental thing, it also it reminds me of Menzies' famous, famous statement all those decades ago, but it's in New Zealand now. He referred to forgotten Australians. Mm. And boy, we've got some forgotten New Zealanders at the moment and they feel for it. They're not saying much. They're not talking too much, but when you get in the quietly talking to them and they whisper to you what they're going to do, you know that there's a surge on. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I've mean, i been talking to a lot of people. Some of them are very senior business people with very large companies, and they're all saying to me, you know, we're going to back Winston on this in this election. And I say to them, why is that? And they say to me, well, because he actually is talking about New Zealand as a country and the people that are in this country, not these global uh, womble-type issues. Uh, they like your plain speaking. They like the fact that you're taking on this woke agenda out there. Is that what you're also picking up on, on the street when you're in these small towns like Pairoa and Whanganui and places like that where you're getting five, 600 people in, the, in, in a room? Yeah. That's what we're picking up, and they are seriously annoyed, you know, with the global agenda, so to speak. They don't like the fact that they were taking natural products and all of a sudden there's a Therapeutic Products Act passed about four weeks ago, which is the control of our national interest or sovereign interest by offshore interests. Just like that, right under their nose. They're really hopping mad about that. They're hopping mad about the fact that they did know that there was vaccine injured. They didn't know that people were mandated out of their existence, affecting you know thousands of families and thousands of children, spouses and husbands, because one or other had lost their job. And they really wanted some, some justice. They um, want to think that it's fair. They want to know what happened to my right to say to the government, I don't agree. Mm. It's that fundamental. Yeah. And speaking of legislation that's being passed, it needs to be unpicked. You've lined up this therapeutics bill. Are you going to be wanting to roll that back, get rid of it? We're not rolling it back. We're not going to have a review. We're not going to uh, tweak it. We're going to repeal it. Just bang, one clause in a bill, and that's the end of it. What about, all, what about all the COVID legislation that's still sitting there on the books? Well, again, it won't survive the inquiry that we got ordered. Our inquiry has got wide terms of reference. We want new people doing the inquiry because anyone on that inquiry who could accept the narrow terms of reference was never intended getting to the bottom of the facts. That's why I'm more than that, not because I know them personally, but if you could accept as the person could do an inquiry, those terms of reference, and you're not fit for the inquiry. Mm. I'm happy to tell them to their face because overseas you've got now leading democracies flat out, America and Australia and the UK, you've got leading democracies, people calling for the fundamental thing that you want to learn is not the mistakes so much you made, but what could we do and what can we do much better coming forward? That's why we've got to get some um, decent information out of there rather than this gaslighting down a rabbit hole conspiracy theorist uh, reaction from people who now must know that when this inquiry is over here and internationally, it'll be they that look like they went down a rabbit hole. It'll they will be conspiracy theorists and we all know who they were conspiring with. There's an old saying in LV Martin, you know, old Alan Martin used to stand there on TV and look a bit stilted and say that, you know, it's not the mistakes that are made, it's the putting right that counts. 
Oh, it's a brilliant slogan, actually. And it's also, it mirrors uh, the famous comments by um, Theodore Roosevelt when he said uh, uh, at the start of his policy to try and get on top of the Great Depression and the misery in the United States, he said, we won't always get it right, but I promise you we'll keep on trying. Now, yeah. that's the humility that you need. And I never saw it under the former prime minister or under this current one. They were the podium of truth and everybody else was telling lies, just like that. And that is not what images a democracy. It images a different type of society. Dare I say it, a communist or fascist society or mm. dictatorship. That's the kind of language that comes into those societies, but not a democracy. And that's why I raised that, because there's a lot of people out there that blame you for uh, Jacinda Ardern. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to relitigate all of that because we've discussed that before. Um, but, you know, in my discussions that that we've had offline, you know, having a few chats from now and then, I got the impression that you are wanting to take up what Alan Martin used to say about it's the putting right that counts, acknowledging mistakes from the past and then moving to correct some of those mistakes, whether it's COVID legislation, mandates, um, you know, one thing that's dear to me, of course, is is firearms legislation because there's been some appalling mistakes made there. Uh, and again, there's a lot of voters out there uh, in the firearms community that blame New Zealand First for what they say is selling us down the river. And they don't understand the political implications of that, but that's the impression there. You've well, said you're gonna, you said you're going to repeal the therapeutics bill You've said you're going to have the COVID uh, inquiry that's going to knock a lot of those things on the head. What about on firearms? Uh, it's dear to me. You know, I can, I can see a situation where we've already spent a huge num- amount of money on having a, a register. And the old register had so many flaws and holes in it. And I can see a point there where the register will be retained. But is there the possibility that we could go back to what that Commission of Inquiry said and remove enforcement and move management of firearms out of the police and at the same time be a little bit more sensible around registration and say, well, you know, we really should just focus on maybe pistol owners, uh, collectors and people with prohibited and not apply the register to absolutely everybody. Look, from my information, and I'm relying upon that information, there have been licensed gun owners selling to get to guns to gangs. There's too much evidence of that, of later inquiry by lawyers and what have you, defending these people. Mm. Now, where our position has always been that when 50 people, 51 people lost their lives on the 15th of that dreadful March day, and then another 40 were massively ruined for life, to do nothing was never an answer. But the profound reason I answered the question from a guy who's on the gun control register as a policeman, I said, we're going to take it out of your hands because you missed the boat on the, before the 15th of March from that guy coming out of Australia. And the second thing, I want to have a credible group of people independent as a commission on this matter, which is always our policy. We mm. took it so far that when we went, the commission never got to be in place. This is a computerized age. Why can't we get on top of this? But our main focus is the possession of guns in criminal and gang hands. That's always going to be our focus going forward now. But a register isn't going to stop criminals getting guns, is it? 
Well, what I'm going to, and I was talking to a senior barrister the other day, saying to him, look, why can't we get a group of people highly experienced in the area of both investigation, knowledge, local, local information, and also legal expertise, and sort this matter out? Mm. Why is it such a shocking problem? Australia, uh, John Howard did, after that terrible massacre in Australia, um, and the question is, is it foolproof? No, because you always get dishonest people. Mm. That's the problem. Well, but I mean, you've got the you've got the you've got the security systems now to investigate and almost know where guns are in the gang's possession. And I don't want to, to know why we aren't using it. And that's the reason why we're just taking the Queensland and Western Australia approach and declaring them terrorist act, uh, organizations. Because that's exactly what they are. If Proud Boys can be declared from the United States to be such, why would people with the same behaviour here, why would they not be treated the same way? Well, worse behaviour. What behaviour? The Proud Boys didn't have any behaviour. No, they just um, had a name. Yeah. yeah. They were given given a terrorist designation and Ardern gleefully um, went along with it. But when it comes to the mongrel mob or the headhunters or Black Power or any of the other ridiculously named groups of ferals, uh, we seem to want to cuddle them and give them millions of dollars of taxpayers' money. Well, you know, this is sad about it because you say that one gang got $3.2 million, uh, with respect to what they were doing. As though they were going to put that to a good purpose. This naivety knows no bounds and also belies the nature and character of, for example, the great things like the Mari Battalion and what they were capable of doing. This was amazing what, what happened, you know, and... Um, when you think about it, uh, how shall I say it? Is this separatism behaviour? It's not what Mari want. You remember this. The guy is the head of the military. His name is Pornang, and he's asked by Rob Muldoon, how many Mari have you got in the army? You know what he said? Prime Minister, we, are, we just have soldiers in the army. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Well, that's the most telling comment. This yeah. is a Mari, senior Mari, the top of the army, top of the military, like Metapariah, Pariah and all those guys. Done all, gone all the full distance. And he's trying to tell you something, and you've got all these sociologists and people have done a flippant university course trying to say it isn't so. There was a news article the other day. The, the New Zealand Defence Force was gloating about uh, receiving a, an award for being the most rainbow organisation in New Zealand, celebrating the woke agenda. Don't we just want soldiers who know how to fight? Well, look. Remember this great conservative principle, really, and it is a conservative principle more than any other, that the government has no business in the nation's bedrooms. And the second statement, live and let live, uh, which I happen to believe in. But having said that, when a small minority seeks to change the agenda uh, to the extent that the mass majority is having the whole education and every other system changed to suit them, then that is wrong. That's what my concern is. Uh, I know people who, um, you know, you might say rainbow, who have been uh, in, quite incredible in this context uh, and also extraordinarily reliable. I um, had a female who was looking after my uh, accounts and what have you and my earlier political career. And I knew more about people conspiring against me than anybody else because she was an absolute ace. And I can never forget that. And I thought... You and I have never talked about gender issues and whether you're this and whether you're that. It doesn't matter to me if the number one thing that you're giving is professionalism and uh, loyalty. I saw uh, Rawari Waititi say 
in an interview on News Hub with Lloyd Burr when they were playing 10 guitars and a few other things. And um, Rawari Waititi said that he's not a fan of democracy. He thinks democracy is the tyranny of the majority. Oh, yes, I saw that. And also he said that uh, Maori had a superior... Genetic gene- makeup. Yeah, genetic makeup. That was appalling. Imagine if I'd have said something like that. Mm. Well, I mean, you said that we're not... Maori aren't indigenous and uh, caused a huge uproar. Something well, that's, you, that's actually a position you've held for more than 30 years. But Well, it is. And also my authority is people like Sir Peter Buck, who was a brilliant Maori politician. He was also a brilliant anthropologist and, you know, had the reputation all the way across the Pacific, all the way to Hawaii. This is a resoundingly brilliant man. He says something and everybody's, and I, when I repeat it, they're, they're, they're tax on me. And I thought to myself, no, you don't. I mean... I was uh, in the Cook Islands arriving one time for the first time, and this very famous, incredible man, actually, who sailed a yacht all the way to um, Florida to join the NASA program uh, for the rocket moonshot and all those programs. Mm. This, his name was Sir Tom Davis, and he says to me, Winston, welcome home. Now, I knew exactly what he said. Now, these are the kind of people that we've got connections with, DNA connections with, and we know where our original origins came from, in as far as coming from the Cook Island means. And when you say something so logical, like how can you be indigenous in two countries? Mm. But they're not interested in facts. They're interested in work preference or a certain set of uh, um, created facts, which then gives them the basis for their deceitful narrative. Uh, one of our, uh, one of my fellow hosts has described this mentality as a looter mentality. Is that something that you... <laughs> 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 well, you know, I, I, I looked at the one, I was at this meeting one time, these radical Maoris are getting going, and I said, you know, you can't even be consistent. First thing you're saying is the white man is the cause of your demise, and your second sentence is, and I want the white man to fix it. How do you reconcile those two statements? Mm. They are so much at odds that it tells me your first statement is bulldust. I, mean, I just can't reconcile what uh, Rawari Waititi is saying, that he doesn't want, like democracy because it's the tyranny of the majority. What he's actually saying is that he doesn't want democracy and he wants the absolute tyranny that comes from the minority controlling the country. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And that's a sad thing about it because he doesn't understand either that anybody who's a true Democrat who understands democracy knows that one of its obligations is to protect the rights of the minority. Mm. He doesn't even grasp that. He, just, he thinks it's just a blunt. It is a blunt uh, tool where the majority does what it likes. And no democracy, in the true sense of the word, will last very long if those who have, in the short time or the brief time, got the majority don't understand the needs of looking after minority. It starts with every aspect of that, but also it isn't the obligation of the Speaker of the House. The Speaker of the House is to look after the minority's views so that the system is held to account and no voice is shut down. But, of course, he's got such a superficial attitude and he doesn't understand that they're polling about 1.1%, 1.2% max. He claims in the next breath that Maori 80 and 90% of the population. Well, if that's true, then only one out of 19 Maori has got any time for you and to party Maori, which is possibly why they're going to go down and out of parliament in this election. Do you think that is a possibility? Yes, I do. I do, because uh, in this race to the bottom, some Maori are starting to wake up. 
some are starting to say, look, all you do is make promises. All you do is play the blame game. When did you come and do something brilliant for Māori, like that changed their lifestyle around? Like I was down at Oporiki the day, seeing this new muscle factory that we built on the Provincial Growth Fund and talking to the board and what have you, where they're building the biggest muscle farm, not in New Zealand, Australasia, but in the whole world. And they're excited as anything. They've got 200 workers now. They're going to afford 300. And then I went on to Hawke's Bay and I saw a limery, which is a lime growing place, which started off with our help in the Provincial Growth Fund and now has got a serious orchards going, but also got 20 suppliers from around the region as part of that limery. This is incredible stuff. And I talk to myself and think to say, okay, Rada, will you show me what you've ever done? And I go over and over and over again. Manaki to Ewi was a program where I went to the Māori academics and said, look, I haven't got the money. I want to get a whole lot more, thousands more Māori into university. It's money that's stopping them to try and get their first year fees. Now, if you'll do me a favour, I can't pay for it. I haven't got the money. But if you will do all the administration of registering them, the qualified ones, I'll find the money to get them in university. And we had the biggest intake of Māori university students ever. That's a record of achievement as opposed to all this flying around, blaming the white man, blaming the DNA, even though he's got a whole lot of European DNA in him. Mm. That's what I don't understand. It's like me dumping down on my Scottish heritage that I'm not going to do and I'm proud of it. Or dumping down on my advisor, Yugoslav or Croatian or dumping down on my Samoan, whatever heritage is, just because of this doesn't make me special. It's uh, far more, you know, it's important to remember our, our past. But we're in a country of uh, you know, 5.2 million people, probably going to be 5.3 the way this massive sugar hit of immigration is going on. But in the end, we've got no chance of being a house divided. It's no. all these fundamentals like, that concern me. I just want to touch again on the Jack Tame interview. Um, he was saying that, uh, that you didn't have any costings for a new prison. That's not your policy, though, is it? Well, yes, but he didn't get it. What threw me was, I thought, but they're in prison now. These mm. gang members, I'm talking about, are in prison now and recruiting now. So there's mm. no extra cost. We're just going to put them in a prison where they're all by themselves and they can't recruit others. And there's 2,000 empty prison beds now. Mm. So I'm trying to figure out the logic of what he's saying. All of a sudden, the cotton on to me, we argued there were 2,700, and I thought, well, that can't be right. Because the corrections uh, officers, people that came to see me, they're spokespeople, told me it was they thought it would be something like 3,000, but no one could be certain. Mm. That's what they said, because you've got phases of recruitment or not being recruited and what have you. And so when he said that, I thought, well, that can't be right either. And then I realised he having asked me to speak about four subjects mm. that he hadn't at the end of an hour covered one of them. That's the part where I realised it was a total jack-up. So it was a hit job. It was a hit job, yeah, designed to do that. And but you, you saw it. And but you, you knew that, though, didn't you? You knew it would be a hit job. Well, no, I thought this close to the election that I could expect better. And that's why I said to him, you did that for the last election. You made all those allegations. We won twice in court and you've never apologised. And that's why I said you're bent and you're crook. <laughs> and uh, that's what it, uh, you know, that's when you got upset. Oh, well, I've upset him before. He's easy to upset. <laughs> well, as I say, he's a lefty shell. And I can see that he won't be in his job very long. The reason for that is he doesn't understand balanced interviewing, which means that when 
the program's over, that people know far more about the person being interviewed than the interviewer. Yeah, I mean, people don't want to hear what I've got to say. They want to hear what you've got to say. Well, you know, I've watched them over the years, great interviewers, and in the end I thought, well, that interviewer, I don't think he agrees with that person, but at least that person put their case. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, my good friend uh, Brian from you know, the old Fear Go fella, he, yeah. was, he was a superb interviewer. We knew he was left-wing. We knew what his biases were, but when he was interviewing people, you, you got a straight journalist asking questions and elucidating and exploring the answers from his interview subject. And you know, I, I call Brian Edwards my good friend, and um, yeah, it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing from a little bit of an argument we had in the past, but I've always admired people like Brian Edwards. Yeah, well, that's the point, you see. The fact, that, the fact is that people who are really serious professionals can disguise their political preference in their body language, they can disguise it. That's how unbiased they are. But I can see in Jack Tan's body language the moment he got going. Mm. You're not here to have an interview with me. You're here to try and stitch me up. And that's when I thought, I've got news for you, sunshine, and it's all bad. <laughs> yeah. Look, well, I, I, just, I just had one the day before with Rebecca Wright. This is incredible stuff. I got two Europeans with no background in the Maori world at all, no knowledge, no knowledge didn't know all these people that I've known all over the years, and, uh, you know, being there at the very start of the Murray Land March when they were protesting against the Labour Party government of 1970s. And here these two people are thinking they're going to win taking me on, and I thought everybody in my support is going to say, Winston, please be nice, please smile, and I thought, well, hang on a minute. This is not going to improve the world if I let them get away with it. Yeah, but you can you can twist the knife with a grin and a smile, though, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think, um, well, I, but uh, Barbara's smiling in, uh, how shall I put it? I was smiling, I was smiling in amazement. That's why I looked around and I, one time I thought, later on when I saw it, I thought, actually, you're talking to the camera, you're not talking to him. The reason was I, I thought, let's appeal to the ordinary people out there and see what they think of this rubbish. Yeah. I mean, that's what Muldoon used to do. You just look straight down the barrel of the camera. Uh, you must, You must have learned from him. Uh, one time I was watching him and he's in a debate with Roger Douglas and Roger Douglas is coming up with this absolute weird idea and Muldoon turns left to the camera on the left-hand side and gives that unusual cheek look that actually distracted the whole interview. People were focused on that and then all of a sudden they realised he's saying that, that idea is cuckoo. Yeah. And it was just brilliant. <laughs> it was just brilliant. Uh, I, I can remember Muldoon uh listening to a, a, a speech in Parliament. It was a grand speech uh, from from a Maori orator. don't know who it was. I can't remember the exact details. But I remember Muldoon said after that, he says, uh, that was a fantastic speech, but I can't remember a damn thing he said. And so I changed the way that I was going to operate in politics and I was going to make sure that you remembered what I said. And he did actually change the way that he did things after that so that you never forgot what Robert Muldoon said in a speech. Oh, there's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I've heard people, uh, Rob Muldoon was uh, a, a speaker that you could understand with great clarity. So was uh, Tall Boys. He was a very good debater, mm. Tall Boys, from down the Deep South. Uh, and then you got those other people that got up and when they finished with their uh, vowel salad, of about six vowels for every word and waving their hands around, you were none the wiser. 
a bit like a hovercraft. It comes along and blow there for the time they were speaking, this placid water, but when they go away, there's choppy waters again. And you don't want to be that person. You want people to remember what you said. Malden is right. I think, I think it's in his book, The Young Turks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, mean, I was doing some research for this interview today with one of your people who used to write speeches for you. And uh, this was back in the days when there was 10-minute speeches in Parliament, and he said to me over coffee this morning, he used to write the speeches for you, so they ended at six minutes. So when you got to the end of it, you had to wing it after that for the next four. Well, I said, and don't worry about it. They'll start interjecting, and I'll need four minutes to deal with them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I won't so, ask you who I was. Let me tell you a truly funny thing. You might, but it's the, it's the excitement of politics. The Labour Party is out of government in 1991. Mm. They've been badly bruised by the Rogernomics experience, so to speak, and they were a disaster. And Longy was still there, and uh, one day he was making a speech, and the Labour Party was being encouraged by it, as downtrodden as they were, and starting to clap him. And a person called Cathy O'Regan on our side, the national yeah. side, went away and got a piece of paper and wrote on it, C, big piece of paper, C-L-A-P. And the next time Longy told a joke, she swung it around and showed it to him. Guess what Longy said? Thanks for the warning. <laughs> Thanks for the warning. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Yeah. Um, I always try and gauge what this election feels like by elections in the past. I'm detecting shades of 2002 for the Labour Party. They're taking the place of Bill English in the National Party. But I'm also detecting shades of 1996 here. What's yeah. your gut feel on what this election feels like, given that you've had four million elections since you were the um, ship's, ship's boy on Noah's Ark? Um, now you're saying like Rebecca right now. Look, can, I say, <laughs> can I say this? It's, uh, it's funny to say that, but I think what's made it so uncertain, and this is why it's unique, this is an uncertain election because so many voters who know Labour stuff, who were Labour voters, are not too sure of what they get, where to go to. The moment they realise Labour is stuff, they will go. The second question is not knocking Luxon or any other party, but the so-called opposites have not convinced people that they are the answer. Mm. They really haven't convinced the people they got the answer, and those polls show it because if ever I saw a climate when he should be smashing the current failed government, it's now. Yeah, that's what I can't understand. I can't understand why uh, we're not seeing John Key levels of support for the National Party with, I mean, I, I interviewed Michael Bassett. He said this is the worst government in his memory and he's uh, 85 years old. Yes. Uh, and then I pressed him on that and I said, come on, you're a historian. Is this the worst government ever? And then he, he had a bit of an argument about a government from 1932 to 35, but then he finally relented and said, no, this is the worst government we have ever seen in New Zealand. Yeah, but see, aspects of the alternative is coming in the form of Act, which want to uh, cut, uh, tax, uh, cut spending by $35 billion. And when you say Bassett mentioned the 1932, 1935, well, a guy called Forbes was the Prime Minister at the time, and he thought he was going to defeat the circumstance by deflation in the end. So he was cutting back when smart economies were investing in sweat in the future, knowing that 
if it's for long-term construction, it'll be there 30, 50 years from now. And they missed it. And so there was, Bassett is right, but uh, even by 1935, the Labour Party only won because they dropped public ownership of land. Mm. They allowed the privacy of land to continue. Uh, but this government, in, uh, since 2020, it's been a month after month, disaster after disaster. Ministers going down absolutely screaming incompetence. That's the problem with it all. It, it's a competence issue, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you is. would have seen that round the cabinet table from 2017 to 2020, that you were dealing with people that were ill-equipped to be even a minister, much less an advisor to a minister. Well, I don't want to name some of the ones who I thought were fit to do the job. Oh, they go might, on. Go they on. Might, they might, I might make enemies of, of them <laughs> in their own party. But there were ones I thought, you know, you know what you're doing. You, you've been around long enough. You've had enough experience. And then there were ones I thought, this is breathtaking. You're using all this language about well-being and transformation, what have you. Transformed to what? And then you had, you know, 100,000 houses from Phil Twyford. Mm. And I'm, I'm saying to him, look, there are very good house builders or businessmen who are not um, exploitative. They'll want to help this country. They've got a great, tremendous reputation in building social houses in their own area. You need to talk to them. They'll give you enormous help. And, but he never did. And as a consequence, this whole thing didn't happen. And now we've got just to make sure we can't get on top of it. We've got a sugar head of another 100,000 immigrants, 70 percent are coming to Auckland now. And whatever you're seeing in Auckland now is going to be much worse, sad to say. What are you going to be able to do to stop that? Well, the reality is I am trying to say, and that's why we're putting out our manifesto, when the official cash rate's known tomorrow, because far too much in this campaign has ignored the preview on the 12th of September, ignored the 15th of March, uh, the latest update before that time, ignored the fact that the uh, borrowings have been forecast to be so much greater, ignored the fact that the um, IMF said that of Asia Pacific, we are the worst. They're averaging 4.4. We're averaging, uh, they said at the time, 0.8. And predicted next year, of the 160 countries that they surveyed, we'd come in at 159, just in front of Equatorial Guinea. All these alarming things seem to have been missed by the other parties. They're still promising they can do all these things. And I'm sitting here thinking, where did they think they're going to get the money from? Mm. There's no shortcut now. I want the basics fixed up. All the shortages and health specialists fixed up now. All the fundamentals need to be fixed up now. And there's only one way out of this. It's more clever work, greater productivity, which is a taxation concession to business matter, mm. and export, 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 add value and add value to the max. And if you can, substitute imports for homegrown product. These are fundamentals you'll see in Singapore. You'll see it in the Taiwanese economy. You'll see it in Iceland. You'll see it in Scandinavia. But what we used to do, we've dropped off doing. And with these promises, I thought to myself, do these people making those promises want to be there three years' time looking at the electorate and trying to answer for themselves? Because they did see it that way. I'm going to be here in 2026 making these same statements. I think they might restrain themselves, but I cannot follow it. Now, I saw Grant Robertson criticising the National Party and saying that, and Hipkins doing it as well, saying that, uh, the prescription of the National Party means there'll be cuts to government spending. And I was sitting there scratching my head thinking, well, hang on a second. You're the guys that called in the heads of all of the government departments a month before the preview. 
so they could shave four billion dollars of inappropriate spending off off the books and, and recover that, so that when they issued the preview, it didn't look as bad as it really was. You're precisely right, and I remember you at that time uh, we were talking about it. Mm. But here's the point: if you can't even get the language right, what hope have we got? When they said we're going to spend four billion less, having done that, mm. they called them savings. Yeah. You follow me? Yeah. They called that savings. Now this is kindergarten stuff. But if you could find four billion dollars in a, less a, a half a day's meeting with CEOs, surely yeah. you can find forty billion of inappropriate. So, I mean, you know, people are saying that you can't fund this, and you've said that. Uh, you're going to use the the light rail funds, and then then they come out with this cockamamie excuse that it hasn't the money's not there. Well, I can remember the money being allocated in the budget for the light rail project, so the yes. money is there; it is allocated. That can be reefed back, surely. Well, as you say, so if it wasn't a budget, how do you mean that it's not there? Mm. Or have you been cooking the books? That's the first conclusion you could come to when that well, I think we, I think we know the answer to that, don't we? Yeah. But, you know, you saw Hipkins come to Auckland. He promised not one tunnel, not two tunnels. He promised three tunnels, tunnels, two under the harbour, one up the North Shore, and all joined up to light rail, which hasn't had a metre built. Now, I was staggered that the media could actually run that without uh, the ten most fundamental questions. When? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, light rail was six years in the waiting. I haven't had one metre. When was this going to happen and why did you make that statement? Well, they told us that the light rail would be to the airport by 2021. That's right. Here we are two years later with not even a single millimetre of track. Well, can I, can I when Trifford bought it to the Cabinet, first of all, it was said it was $1.9 billion and we're sitting around there. You see, on first saying, what? Is he joking? And then they did, this is what they did. They didn't have a plan, so they put the idea out to tender so you could tender to fulfil the plan that they had announced. Now, the Auditor General heard about that and he said, that's illegal. Mm. Remember that? Yeah. And then it went up to $8 billion, then it came to 14 to $16 billion, and now it's past $30 billion. And the reality is I know the media's bias because that just screams incompetence. Well, I can't wait till you have that media bias inquiry. <laughs> well, it's in their interest. Everybody wants to be truly, if you're a journalist, you want to be in a fine profession. And at the end of the day, it's still, I've seen internationally in, a, in, in, in this country, some seriously fine journalists who I've always respected. And I don't know what their politics is. Well, just as a final question then, before we go, of all of the political journalists that are out there now, who would you rate as the finest in New Zealand? Oh, look, I'm just going to make enemies if I answer that question. Other than to say to you, there are a number of them and even new young ones now and that they can survive the potential oppression of their bosses or their masters, uh, they will be very, very, very good journalists. They've got what it takes. Mm. They've got the brains and they've got the, the language, so to speak. But I think that, um, how shall I say, the days when a editor will allow someone to get on with the job and trust them may be a bit distant from what they should be now. Well, I'll give you a name because someone I respect immensely, and that's Barry Soper. Oh, look, it's funny you said that. I was going to think of Barry, but I thought if I, if I say Barry, there's going to be numbers saying, why didn't you say me? And you know something, I've had more hours with Barry than I've got Dennis as well, but the reality is Barry has got guts. 
He's got courage. He's got preparedness to say, no, well, I'm going to find out what goes on here. Mm. And he has his preparedness to say, look, I disagree with you. Now, yeah, I have got um, serious time for him in that context. And as I say, the first time we ever met, we had a row. <laughs> I think he we came, did too. <laughs> <laughs> he came over to me and he said, I've been hearing what you say, what you've been saying about it, how you you um, uh, treated my predecessor, that was Keith Allen. Mm. And we're having this blazing round. I thought, I'm not going to back down to him. Then I thought to myself, oh, for God's sake, forget it. And I said to him, Mr. Savage, do you want a drink? <laughs> and he said, yes. <laughs> so we're not mad at him. And we've been talking ever since. Well, that's, that's the key, isn't it? You have to be talking. Well, that's right. And guess what? Secretly, you just might learn something you need to know. Exactly. And thank you for talking to me on the crunch. And uh, I wish you the best for the election. Just over a week to go. And we'll see how it all lands. And I'm sure we'll be talking on election night. Yeah, look, thank you very much for having me on. Um, it's been, as I say, most unusual. I have been out there on the, under the radar for over two and a half years, campaigning meetings all over the country. And the singular factor of those meetings until very, very recently, and I mean in the last few weeks, Max, has been the utter absence of media. Even mm. though I we used to write 10, 14-page speeches and they wouldn't publish a word of it, and so I realised I'll just keep going. But it's, uh, it's, uh, it's coming home now. And uh, again, to your listeners, you know, whatever you think, I'm not trying to persuade you now, but please make sure you're on the roll and make sure you vote. 28,000 many men in two world wars gave uh, their lives for the right to do so. Please honour it. And on that note, Winston, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cheers, then. Winston Peters is a political survivor, and you heard it here first. He wants to put right some of his past mistakes, and that is admirable. I love the idea of an inquiry into media bias, and I think I'll call it Winston's media Utu policy. Don't forget to send comments on Winston's interview to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR.